Welcome to Square One, powered by FinTech TV. The Indian startup ecosystem has been on an absolute tear over the past decade. With the increased success of founders, ever more capital flowing into the ecosystem, and structural and cultural changes taking place across the entire country, India has never been more ripe for a promising technology future. Today, we chatted with one of India's most accomplished founders, Gunal Bhail. Gunal co-founded Snapdeal 13 years ago and continues to lead the company as CEO today. He's also started Titan Capital with his Snapdeal co-founder, Rohit Bansal. Gunal, Rohit, and the team have invested in over 200 companies in India over the past few years. Today, we pick Gunal's brain on building, scaling, and investing in many of India's most promising startups. Welcome, Gunal. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rumi. Yeah, Kunal, it's a pleasure to have you on today. You know, I've learned so much from you, and I'm, I'm glad our audience is going to be able to share in the same perspective. You know, in today's discussion, we'll focus on what's going on in the Indian startup ecosystem. But to set the context, let's first talk about the mindset shift, you know, of being a startup founder from when you started Snapdeal to today's founders. You've framed it previously as, you know, startups are now seen as a solution to building a great country versus 10 years ago, you know, where it was seen as 20-somethings, you know, dabbling. Just unpack that shift for us and, and let's set the context. Yeah, um, again, great to be here, Romain. Um, you know, when, when we started our business 13 years ago, startups weren't really a positive word or even a phrase that was well understood in India. Uh, I remember I'd, I'd come back to India in 2007 uh, after uh, my uh, visa was rejected uh, in the US. So that's what brought me back to, uh, back to India. But you know, us startup uh, founders were seen to be strugglers and not creators. This is the fundamental thing that has changed in India over the last decade. The founders of startups and their teams are now seen as creators of India in, in 2021 and beyond. Not people who are struggling through life or uh, were adversely selected into entrepreneurship as a career path. Um, the, additionally, I think the support that one is seeing in the ecosystem, whether it is from the investor network, expanding the government leaders, celebrating startups, like I think not a month goes by when the Minister of Commerce of India or the Prime Minister of India is not appreciating the impact the startups are having in our country. It is an unusual thing, if you think about it, for a country as large as ours, with the number of issues we have as a, as a nation, for the leaders of the country to step up and continuously keep celebrating startups, it's very encouraging for, uh, for the talent pool at large. And speaking of talent, there's a huge base of very talented professionals and recent graduates who are now preferring to work at startups than traditional companies, even the multinational companies. All of these are nothing short of tectonic plate shifts compared to when we had started our business. I remember um, even convincing someone who had just recently graduated out of college and had no job um, and was expecting you know, only $500 or $1,000 a month of salary, even they were not able to convince their parents to join our business then, even though we were offering you know, a better salary and we were obviously assuring that, look, we are good people with good backgrounds and committed to this business, but that's not the case anymore. Um, also, I think what has structurally changed in India is that the entire early stage investment ecosystem has grown so massively. And I often say that the first money into startups is often the most important given it determines whether that egg even hatches or not. 
And I uh, recall like 10 years ago, there was barely an early stage ecosystem, investment ecosystem in India. Uh, we had maybe all of 12, 13 VCs and almost no angel investors. You literally had to go to a wealthy uncle or a wealthy stranger and, and lean on their kindness. Um, so, so I think overall we've seen a, a tremendous shift in India over the last decade uh, from a talent standpoint, from a, the, the ability of, of the government to evangelize the startup ecosystem, um, from a capital availability standpoint, uh, uh, everything has changed in the last 10 years. Almost nothing is the same. And, and it's very exciting. The future looks very, very optimistic. Yeah, I think outside in as an investor in a few late stage growth businesses in India, it's been eye popping for me as an outsider just to internalize how quickly the country is changing. You, you mentioned a lot of kind of the elements of what contributes you know, to the ecosystem's growth, right? Um, government inclusion, additional angel investors, capital coming in, talent coming in. There's also a secondary bucket, uh, which is just a tailwind that the country is rising, right? Uh, or, or riding, right? So things like a rising consumer class, you know, internet penetration, et cetera. Give us a little bit more perspective on that latter bucket, especially for, you know, global investors that are outside of India. What are some of those elements that are contributing, you know, to, to India's ecosystem? Yeah, I think there are, it's a confluence of many tailwinds, uh, Romain, uh, that are at play that have suddenly come, come to be at play over the last three, four years. I think first and foremost, this started with uh, the geo led 4G revolution in 2017, 2016, where now fast forward 2016 to present day in the last four or five years, we have nearly a billion smartphone users with the cheapest data on the planet. Just think about it, right? Like uh, 10 years ago, we had maybe 50 million internet users in India. We used to always debate in our ecosystem, are there 50, are there 75? Like, there were a lot of nuanced discussions about whether the number is uh, 50 or 75 or 100, now nobody debates that. Everyone knows that we are in and around a billion smartphone users with the cheapest data in the world. That has very significant implications for any internet business uh, in the country. Um, I think the second factor remain is the rising aspirations. You alluded to that as well. You know, because of the access to information that exists for all these billion smartphone users, uh, they're looking at Facebook, they're looking at what the Bollywood stars are wearing and how they're living their lives and how they are cutting their hair. Um, they are reading about successful entrepreneurs, uh, both in India, outside India. They are learning about what's going on outside of their villages, outside of their towns, outside of their cities in, in ways that they never did before. And all of this is tantamounting to rising aspirations for um, India at large, and particularly for, for, the, for the aspiring class, the, the middle income, lower to middle income uh, classes of India. Uh, there is also abundance of entrepreneurial talent. I think as a society, we have gone through tough period um, in the last many decades, pre-independence, post-independence. And there is this survivalistic instinct that exists in our country and that is being channeled into an, an entrepreneurial uh, uh, talent that many are exhibiting in the country right now. We have hundreds, if not thousands of engineering colleges uh, and, and the talent coming out of those engineering colleges is now being employed by many of these startups. 
and many of them are actually starting their own companies. Uh, there is a, a significant amount of growth in the number of high quality internet-based services that are that have now won the hearts and minds of tens of millions of customers. And in a way, the internet services in India, whether it's a food delivery app, whether it's a, you know, a ride hailing app, whether it's an e-commerce business, they are in a way creating a socio-economic equalization in the country, where whether I'm buying something from, um, from Snapdeal or someone in a village is buying something from Snapdeal, we're actually providing equally good service to both, right? Uh, On-time delivery, low prices, uh, no questions asked returns, and same applies for a food delivery company, right? Whether I order a $5 burger or someone else orders a $5 burger, everyone will get the same service. And that type of socioeconomic equalization has not existed traditionally in uh, you know, non-internet uh, businesses uh, offline in India. Um, you know, we've backed about 200 startups in India yep. and continue to be amazed by the quality of founders. I think there is now tremendous amount of tribal knowledge in the ecosystem over the last 10 years because many, many companies have gotten created. Some have worked, some have not worked, but there's a vibrant ecosystem in India now where there's a lot of exchange of ideas, um, execution has improved, uh, talent cross-pollination has improved. So at least our goal is to be as helpful as we can to the next generation of founders and increase their chances of success. But irrespective, I think just the next 10 years are, uh, even the next 20 years, I would say, are going to be incredibly exciting for the startup ecosystem in India. Yeah, so we've got, we've kind of got two buckets, like we talked about, of, of the tailwinds and, and kind of why India is becoming an interesting ecosystem. I want to, I want to double click into, you know, your experience, not just as an operator and, and, and founder in the ecosystem canal, but what you just mentioned, which is, you know, investing in over 200 companies, right, in a, in a not so, you know, long period of time, right, in this ecosystem as it's grown. Um, and I want to talk about the next wave, right? So you, you've shared with me previously, you know, you're most excited about three archetypes of startups in India. We'll, we'll go through each of the three. Uh, but before we do that, I want to unpack uh, two concepts actually you've shared with me that you're bearish on. Um, and these have been, I, I think this, these will be pretty interesting for our audience. So the first one uh, is this idea of building a startup that is X for India. And I'll tell you from the US, that has been a very common trope, you know, of companies I've seen abroad in not only India, but other you know, fast growing and emerging economies as well. Why, why are you bearish on that concept? And then and maybe let's evaluate the statement through the lens of companies that are building, you know, in the inverse, which, you know, which I would say is kind of building from India for the world. Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, I would say in the early days of the Indian startup ecosystem, a lot of the initial ideas were the X for India. However, what has happened is over a period of time, as the ecosystem has evolved, has gotten deeper, the market's gotten deeper, the number of users have expanded to hundreds of millions, everyone's realized that India is extremely heterogeneous as you go past the first 30, 40, 50 million users who are mostly affluent urban dwellers with good internet connectivity historically and have credit cards, prepaid instruments, well-traveled, just quite aware about, about the world. As the market has uh, gotten deeper beyond the first 50 million uh, users in India, everyone's realized it, it's a different beast altogether and a beast which is incredibly heterogeneous. 
that we have 18 national languages, we have myriad cultures, we have a very, very diverse economic demographic and a per capita GDP that's still a lot lower than the countries from which we would typically draw inspiration for building the X of India. Um, moreover, while, while global investors have always looked for comparable business models, there's now growing appreciation for the, for the fact that uh, lasting enduring businesses in India will get built uh, by uh, capturing uniquely Indian insights and identifying uniquely Indian problems. This doesn't mean that one doesn't draw inspiration from other markets and successful models, but as one looks back over the last 10 years or so, there aren't many businesses that one could point to and say that these guys exactly precisely copied X company in US and China and succeeded massively. I think there's everyone's had to, um, uh, you know, draw some, while they've drawn some inspiration from maybe overseas business models around food delivery, ride hailing, e-commerce, fintech, etc. Um, it is just a starting point. There is likely a lot of pivoting and evolution that the business needs to go through after that. Um, so, so I think overall, I feel that now, um, I don't think even investors in India, even global investors coming into India are asking this question that who are you like? Um, I, it's been a while I've heard investors talking like that in, the, in India, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. I think eight, 10 years ago, that may have been one, uh, amongst the first three questions that folks like us were asked. Another concept I remember bearish on, and, and this was pretty interesting to me, was this idea of building a product on top of WhatsApp. Um, you know, one way to look at this is to say, you know, there's inbuilt ubiquitous distribution, right? The users are already there, dominant messaging platform. So why not build, you know, products and services on top, especially because payments and, you know, some light touch B2B features can be leveraged. Uh, but the other way to look at it is there isn't really any proprietary technology, right? And you're subject to deplatforming. Um, how do you how do you think about that concept? And I'll, I'll kind of again share the the nuance, which is I think a lot of U.S. investors, especially when looking at India, get very excited about building on top of WhatsApp. And so I think kind of this perspective of why it might not be, you know, as attractive as meets the eye is uh, is pretty interesting. Yeah, I can see why folks get excited by it, right? Because you know, WhatsApp is ubiquitous in um, many consumers in India when they go to a store to buy a smartphone, their first smartphone, they will typically ask the shopkeeper, can you give me the, the WhatsApp phone? Um, there is no WhatsApp phone. It's, it's just that the only use case they often have for the phone is WhatsApp. And, and so it's obvious why there is always excitement around businesses that are being built on top of WhatsApp. Although if you were to just unpack it, right? Like there are, I think the reason why there is this excitement is because everyone's seen what happened with WeChat and the WeChat ecosystem in China. However, you know, these comparisons are probably a bit of an apples and orange, apples and oranges comparison because these are two fundamentally very different platforms. You know, WhatsApp is a messaging app, at least for now, right? And, and WeChat is an ecosystem. There are millions and millions of mini apps on WeChat um, that allow a developer to tap into existing network effects of the app. Uh, WhatsApp doesn't allow that. In fact, they exercise a substantial amount of control on how their business APIs get used so that there isn't misuse and spam. And that is sort of their 
in some ways their value proposition uh, for uh, for the end user. Hence, just back to the uh, original question you had, uh, Romain, one can't build on top of WhatsApp. It's actually not possible. One can, however, leverage WhatsApp effectively to drive viral marketing through referral programs. Um, you can do really effective sales funnel management, lead management. You can use it very effectively for customer service. So WhatsApp is an incredible tool for a business if leveraged effectively to enhance customer experience or streamline your processes. Um, but the business can't exist completely on WhatsApp because WhatsApp just doesn't provide the same versatility uh, and functionalities for a developer that a WeChat does. Yep. And, and hence, actually there aren't many examples of companies that have become large that are solely on WhatsApp. All of the companies that are leveraging WhatsApp also have their app, which is also a destination in itself for the end customer. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the three archetypes you're most excited about right now. Um, I love these and I think the audience will as well. So the first is the professionalization of any service that can be learned on YouTube. The second is, you know, D2C brands that can grow via social proof. And then the third is um, anything that's building, you know, in kind of the trust economy, right? So we'll, we'll break each of those down, but let's start with the professional, professionalization of services that can be learned on YouTube. There are a few more themes I'm excited about, but we'll stick to these three for now. Sure. Um, uh, you know, we, we've seen that there are immensely talented people everywhere in the world. It's, yeah. Everyone knows that. In India, that's, it's no different. There are immensely talented people in India also. The challenge, however, in a developing country, a country still which where the per capita GDP is quite low, the challenge traditionally has been that there aren't enough outlets for talented and skilled people to monetize their talent or craft, which they may have built over a long period of time. YouTube has actually changed that. Um, you know, by the way, the search engine for India, uh, the real India, right? Not the urban dwellers, not the English educated, um, uh, literate, uh, office going people uh, like us. For us, search engine is Google, but for most of India, the search engine, the default search engine is actually YouTube. Hmm. Even the literacy levels in India are, um, are not very high. There is a much greater comfort that, that consumers and users have with um, visual media as compared to written media. So for pretty much everything, anything, whether it is news, how-to videos, uh, medical advice, uh, education, or anything, like any skill they want to learn, YouTube is the destination for a large part of the country. You know, if I want to, for instance, figure out um, what is currently, uh, what is sort of the pulse of the nation, I switch my uh, Chrome browser to incognito and open YouTube and go to the trending videos. And you end up seeing a very different side of India compared to what my feed would show on YouTube. And, and hence it is no surprise that um, because there is so much searching that is happening on YouTube, it is no surprise that it has spawned creators who may be in some remote part of the country, but specialize in something that has demand, but nobody knew about it. So examples of these would include someone in rural areas, uh, in rural India who would have figured out an 
figure out innovative farming techniques using hydroponics, right? But are now monetizing these skills through courses on platforms. Uh, you know, may, may, there are many out there in India now. As a result of which they are making real money versus just a small amount of revenue share that they get through YouTube by loading videos. So the entry point for them in getting discovered is YouTube. However, very quickly when they realize that there is a market for what they uh, what their skill or their craft is or what their talent is, there are lots of platforms that have opened up that are allowing these otherwise un undiscovered talented people to monetize their, their talent and craft. So I find this to be very exciting. It's almost an, um, it's an unlimited uh, market size because there are so many people looking for these skills and there's so many people out there who develop these skills or talents, but they've never been matched until, until today. So this I find to be a very exciting, uh, exciting space in India. And, and I think there's a commonality there with, with the second bucket, which is D2C brands that can grow via social proof, right? I think there's a lot of underlying commonalities there. Maybe let's explore that theme, Kunal, through a company you've invested in uh, that's been at hyper growth over the past three years, a company called Mama Earth. And I think a second corollary you know, question that I would append onto that also is, is getting your perspective on whether these D2C social commerce companies you know, actually can be built from India for the world, right? So we talked about this idea of, you know, X for Y maybe not being as applicable, the Indian market being large enough with a billion internet users. Um, but I think there's another chasm to cross, which is not only for the Indian market, even if it's 20X larger than it was historically, but also then building, you know, for the, for the rest of the world. So maybe let's talk through the, the D to C piece through, through those two lenses. Sure. Um... So, uh, you know, before we get into D2C, I mean, uh, we should just understand the retail landscape of India. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a trillion dollar retail market where nearly all the sales across all the categories are split between either small regional brands with limited distribution or very large national and international brands owned by the likes of Unilever, PNGs or their equ Indian equivalents. Now, there has actually been limited innovation on both these fronts for many years, I would say decades, but people would argue with me on that, where the quality of the regional brands is sometimes not up to the mark. And the international brands, because they're bringing these products that have been developed for other markets, maybe some customization has been done for the country, but for the most part, they're very similar to whatever their origin was. Now, traditionally, the distribution for these regional brands was limited to a geography. And for the brands owned by the larger companies, they had, they had nationwide distribution given their resources. They could put thousands of people on the ground to go from one neighborhood store to the, ne to the next, stock the shelves, or go to the organized retailers, pay slotting fees, and, and own all the real estate in the organized retailers, which anyways didn't account for a large share of the total retail market. But it was a land grab in the offline world. And I, if you had existed for a long period of time, you had a structural advantage in the market and there was no room left for a new brand to come in in India. Uh, so even if the quality wasn't great of the traditional brands, consumers still bought them because there was, they, did, they weren't exposed to other good products that could actually be available to them. Now emerged the direct-to-consumer brands off the back of the exponential rise in the e-commerce penetration in India, the ability to reach customers through social media, 
like the whole explosion in the influencer marketing piece, the fact that existing high quality manufacturing capabilities have actually been nurtured by the large consumer product companies in India. So none of these D2C brands have to put any captive manufacturing uh, to, to make their products. And most importantly, I think it's the growing desire for consumers to try new products, to look better, um, have their families and homes look better, have their kitchens look better, um, and be seen as someone who's trying new products uh, versus just using the same ones historically. So Mama Earth, you mentioned, is a fantastic example. It started with uh, making, uh, you know, interestingly, natural uh, mosquito repellents for kids. But in a span of four years is now, um, you know, an overall personal care and beauty juggernaut and the fastest growing direct-to-consumer brand in India in a category which has traditionally been dominated by some very large uh, resource-rich companies. Um, the ability for this company to come up with new products, test and learn, fail and scale is, is absolutely unmatched. But on an overall basis, uh, Romain, I'm super excited about the D2C revolution that's happening in India or in the US as they call it, the DNVBs. Uh, in India, we just call them D2C, it's just easier. Uh, over the next five years, at least we expect that there will be more than a hundred new, greater than hundred million dollar sales or revenue brands created in India. Um, and this trend will just continue from here. Yeah, and, and not just in D2C, you can all bet, I wanna use this to transition a little bit between uh, what's going on in the later stage, right? So Zomato just went public. Uh, there's a slew of other companies on the docket to go public soon in India. Uh, and in parallel, a number of significant growth rounds are getting done, right? Um, and this is this is all very new for India, right? It's going to unleash a number of second order effects, more capital in the ecosystem, more investors, and more founders. How do you think about the current IPO and late stage growth ecosystem in India? And and maybe for global investors, you know, what are some of the elements that, from your experience as a participant in the ecosystem, aren't getting as much headlines or aren't being as appreciated? Uh, you know, which may be interesting perspective for global investors. Yep, absolutely. I think for the last decade, um, if you are a participant in the Indian startup ecosystem as a founder or an investor or a media person, all you've been hearing is uh, how will people eventually exit uh, these companies? Yep. Given, uh, you know, traditionally, India hasn't had a lot of depth when it comes to strategic buyers or domestic strategic buyers who can do large acquisitions or who want to do large acquisitions in this space. They have often restricted themselves to buying either distressed companies or acqui-hires or, or uh, just generally smaller acquisitions. And traditionally in India, public companies weren't amenable, um, uh, public, sorry, public markets weren't amenable to uh, unprofitable public companies. Uh, however, with the current slew of tech IPOs led by the Zomato IPO uh, last week, what they have done is to break open the dam and remove this ceiling that has existed for many years. Uh, that, you know, it was obviously an artificial ceiling, but the ceiling has definitely lifted. And in some ways, the circle of life for the Indian tech companies has now completed. Similar to what has been going on in the US for the last 25 years and China in the last 10, 15 years, India will now see the same established trend of seed to IPO repeat over hundreds and hundreds of companies in the coming years. Now, 
uh, you know, to the second question, uh, Romain, I think a lot of attention is right now going to the consumer stories um, because these are companies with millions or tens of millions of customers who have captured the you know, hearts and minds, the imagination of consumers and the media at large. So they're getting a lot of attention. A lot of the companies going public right now are those who have been traditionally large advertisers. Uh, and as I said, have uh, you know, very large uh, customer bases. So there's a lot of attention around them. However, there are a lot of very high quality software SaaS companies in India that don't get the same level of um, maybe consumer oriented coverage, but are otherwise very high quality businesses mm. and are often even profit making. I expect that these companies will also do quite well when they go public in India as Indian public market investors do appreciate uh, profitability a bit more than maybe uh, US public market investors in tech. Also the Indian public markets uh, have been big investors in the IT services companies for over 20 years, the likes of Infosys, Wipro, TCS, uh, the, you know, the, uh, there is about $200 billion worth of IT services exports that Indian IT services companies do every single year. Right? So it's, it's a massive industry with you know, millions of employees across these companies. And I think most of the big companies in the world at the back end have an Indian IT services company supporting them or, or more than one. Um, SaaS companies out of India are essentially productized versions of these businesses. Over a period of time, there, is a, there will be a you know, multi-year or maybe even a multi-decade transition from services to products for these companies. And a lot of new startups have come up that are productizing a lot of the services that these companies have been selling to overseas clients for many years. I feel that this is going to be a very, very exciting trend where very lasting, enduring businesses will get built, which will also succeed on the public markets. Yep. Kunal, as, as, we, as we wrap up, I want to finish on a, on a lighter note with something you tweeted recently. Uh, you wrote, everything you own owns a little piece of you. You know, there's a corollary statement in the Gita, which adds to this, which is what we give sets us free. You and I have talked you know, about this idea at length of kind of purpose in life, the importance of having direction. Um, I want you to unpack the thought process behind that tweet. It was very recent. It was a day or two ago. I, I want you to unpack the thought process behind that and just how your perspective on purpose has matured, you know, through the journey of Snapdeal. Yeah, um, actually the complete saying in Gita, um, uh, Romain is, what we take owns us, what we give sets us free. So, uh, you know, it does have a sublime message for founders out there raising capital. Um, but, you know, I've always thought about four things that matter most to me, um, which are health, family, freedom, and purpose. So over, you know, and if you were to just talk for a minute about these, you know, health, exercise every day, eat healthy, eat less sugar, um, you'll be mostly fine. Uh, you know, some things you can't predict health-wise, but whatever you can do in your hands, if you do it, you'll be reasonably healthy. Um, you know, family I've seen, they, they just want your time. They want your undivided attention from time to time. And that's all they want from you. And oftentimes uh, we are not able to even give that, but just being conscious about that is important. Freedom, just don't do anything wrong uh, and you will have your freedom. Um, and then finally having a sense of purpose. So over a period of time, as your basic needs get met, 
uh, one does think more and more about purpose. One one thinks about what is uh, what keeps you going, what gets you bed out of uh, out of bed every day, and not just troubleshooting and firefighting, but you know, what are you building? You know, what is the impact that you're creating? Over a period of time, at least I've realized that I enjoy building businesses. I enjoy supporting other founders in their journeys with capital, mentorship, and I really enjoy spending a lot of time with my family. So now I would say 95% of the time I spend uh, is split between these three things, right? Which is building our business, supporting other founders, and with my family. And, and I think uh, uh, just to just having that purpose that I'm creating some impact every day of my life is, is whether directly or vicariously, at the same time ensuring that uh, one doesn't get lost only in the world of commercial pursuits is important. And which is why having control over one's time, the ability to spend unstructured and unscheduled time with your family, uh, with your parents, your wife, your kids, it's probably the most important joy one can have in life. So this freedom is probably the truest blessing that, uh, that, that I'm really happy about. Benal, this has been great. It's, uh, it's so welcome to hear your perspective on the Indian ecosystem, both as an entrepreneur and as an investor. I'm, I'm super personally excited for you on the next chapter of Snapdeal and, and really, I think, together to continue to watch you know, India as a country ascend. So thanks again for the time and, and you're welcome back anytime. 